Welcome back to Nachiyomi. Today we are going to be continuing into chapter 11, the 11th Perak of Sefer Shoftim. We are now going to meet Yiftach and we're going to learn a lot about him. In fact, this is a pretty long Perak. What I'm going to do is, is as we move through the summary, we're going to focus on some of the points to ponder intermittently. So we're not going to go do an entire summary and then come back. We're going to just, because there's so many different parts to the story. Here's how it starts. We know that Israel are in a real uh, a place of difficulty. They are, they are praying to God for a savior. They haven't found a savior. Now we get a bit of background. There's a sphere called Yiftach. Yiftach from Gilad. Gilad, of course, is on the, the, the Menashe side of the east bank of the Jordan. And he was a very strong fellow, but he was born to an Isha Zona. Um, and because of this, he was rejected by his brethren and uh, kicked out of the inheritance. And he went to, to stay in, in a land called Tov, good, good land. And he kind of gets a band of merry men, of strong men around him. Um, <clears throat> what does it mean that he's a, he's a son of an Isha Zona? So Zona in Tanakh sometimes means a prostitute. That means to say that he was an illegitimate child out of the marriage, which is why his brothers rejected him from the family. Interestingly enough, there are other interpretations um, which are suggested. One fascinating one is Rabbeinu Bechayi. Rabbeinu Bechayi is actually to be found at the end of Sefer by Midbar, and he says a very fascinating thing. There was a mitzvah, one generational, that at the times of the inheritance of the land, when Israel moved into the land of Israel, that everybody should marry within their tribe. This was in connection with the daughters of Tzalafchad, and it was for a very specific reason. For the first generation, Moshe Rabbeinu, via Hashem's command, wanted Israel's inheritance to solidify in its, in its natural states. If there had been intermarriage between the different Shvatim, what would end up happening is, is Nachala, some of the land would move from one family to another, and it wouldn't solidify into its natural tribal boundaries. So therefore, there was a one-generational mitzvah. For the first generation entering the land, everybody had to marry into their own. And, um, and that mitzvah disappeared the second generation in. So Rabbi Bachaya points out that maybe there afterwards, even though there was no technical infringement for marrying into another tribe, it was considered something which wasn't done. So maybe the notion of Zona over here refers to the fact that Yiftach was a product of a marriage between one tribe and another, and that's why his brothers were so, there was this taboo on it. Even though it was no longer a mitzvah, there was this taboo, which is why he was kicked out. Nonetheless, he's kicked out. He seems to gather a lot of, we'll call it military success in his new home, which is why um, once Amon is now encamping along the banks of Gilad, um, they, ser they search him out and they say, and uh, Israel calls him back, the elders call him back and say, please come, come and, uh, and fight for us. So Yiftach, Yiftach says, says what, are you, what are you talking about? You kicked me out and now you want me back? Why, 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 you, only, you only want me when, I, when, I, when I'm needed? It's kind of like reminiscent of what Hashem was saying, when Israel comes to Hashem. They only want Hashem when they need Hashem. So, uh, so they make a deal, and it sounds like what they're adding in the deal is that they ask, they say that he's going to be a Rosh, that he's going to be their head. Um, meaning to say he doesn't want just to be used as a mercenary. He wants to be a Rosh or Katsin. He wants to be a recognized general and, um, and leader. And they agree. They acquiesce. They're in a tight spot. And they bring Yiftach back with all the accolades he needs. So what's the first thing Yiftach does? Yiftach, as opposed to going on the defensive, goes into the offensive. He sends a delegation to um, the king of Ammon, who's encamping around Gilad. And he says, why are you fighting with me? So the king of Ammon says, because you took my land. When you guys came out of Egypt, you came and you took my land. So Yiftach says, well, let me straighten up a few things for you. <clears throat> Yiftach makes a very long, eloquent argument, but there's already four points that he makes in his argument. Number one is, um, is that, that we did never attack you. If you read the Torah very carefully in Parshas Chukas, you'll see that Israel never attacked Ammon. They never attacked Edom, Ammon, and Moab. They only attacked the lands of Sichon and Og. Those are further north on the eastern bank of the, um, of the Jordan River. 
Um, but what happened was there was an interesting historical twist, and that was the following. That at the time, that there, was a, there was a predated war between Ammon and Sichon. Sichon, which was the territory which Israel conquered, had actually conquered land in Ammon. Which meant, although that Israel couldn't attack Ammon because they were part of the family, when succeeding against Sichon, they actually got territory which had formerly been that of Ammon. So Yiftar says, we didn't attack you. We never took your land. We took the land of Sichon, which was originally your land. But that, let's get the historical facts um, set. Number two is God gives, if God gives it to us, who are you to argue? Um, the third argument he makes is, are you stronger than, than Balak who tried to fight us? Look what happened to Balak. He didn't end up with such a pleasant end in the, um, um, at the end of the day. So these are the arguments he makes. It's fascinating over here that history, as much as it changes, it never, it never really does change. You know, here we are, you know, we we're talking years after a conquest which was clear and accepted and the boundaries are accepted and here now history is being revised. You really took our land from us. Sounds very familiar. This is exactly what's going on then. Yiftach is fighting against the, stilt, uh, the stinted media of the, um, of the time. So Amon, Amon disregards him. <clears throat> so Yiftach says, he turns to Hashem and he says, he makes a very unusual neder, a, 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 a promise to God. He says, if you give this to me, if you allow this battle to work, when I return in peace, whatever comes out of my, my house will be an honor, will be a sacrifice to you, O God. And he jumps straight into battle. We, give only, we only really have two psukim about this battle, but it sounds like it was a, a resounding thump. Um, <clears throat> on Amon's side, they lost 20 cities in this battle. Fantastic, they win the battle, he returns victorious, and lo and behold, he comes back to his home, and... Yiftach's only daughter, his only child, his only daughter, walks out of the house. That's the first thing, the first thing or person who comes out to greet him. And as he sees her, he tears his clothes and he says, Oh, yeah, yeah, how did I do this? And I can't, I can't return on this, on the, on this nether. And she, uh, and uh, <clears throat> she seems to submit. She and uh, she says, Don't worry, give me two months and I'll, I'll, I'll go to the mountains and think about it. And, uh, and that's what, and the parak ends in a very cryptic manner. It says that, that um, after two months, she returns to her father and he did his neder to her as he promised. That she was never married. And for, from, from time to time, the girls of Israel go out to, to weep for the, for, the daughter, for the daughter of Yiftach. A very sad ending over here. A very strong leader at the same time as not what seems to be a little bit of a rash leader in the way that he is, he's leading this. There's so much to talk about over here, but just one or two points to ponder very, very quickly. In the Mephorashim, it is well known that there are actually two um, ways of reading what is really going on over here. And the one, one way of reading this is, is that he meant it as he meant it. He meant that I would sacrifice whatever comes out of my house to kill it. His intentions were that an animal would come out and he missed that and he, he spoke too, too, too soon. His daughter came out and what he in fact did was in fact to kill his daughter. Rahman al what a terrible, terrible um, um, situation that occurred. Others read it more subtly and they say, no, that he, to bring her, whatever comes out of his house as an oiler means he wanted to sanctify whatever, dedicate to God whatever came out of his house. And so therefore, the fulfillment of his nether was in fact giving her a life of celibacy, of, of being alone by herself. And therefore, that's why the Tanakh refers to her as not marrying anybody. So she remained as, as, as a sort of this trapped individual, never able to consummate a life, to have children, to have a marriage. And she, was, she remained isolated because of his nether. Also a terrible, terrible predicament. He gives a different spin on this. There are many different um, indications in the Psukim and in Tanakh as a whole as how could 
he have done this? Was he allowed to do this? Was it actually an effect or not? There's a tremendous amount of literature written on this. We are for, for our sake right now, this is just the, the general overview. One last thing I'd like to close with, and this is like just a question which I think really should be articulated is, is why couldn't he ask, uh, let, let's say that, that the netter was, was in effect. So ask somebody about it. Go to, go to somebody who can be matir netter. A netter is not something which is, which is permanent if there's a way to get out of it. He could have said very easily, he could have gone to a basin and said, um, you know, I didn't realize that it would be my daughter who was going to walk out. And therefore we could talk about the notion of maybe there's a Pesach, there's a, there's a piece of information he had missing. Or maybe even if he couldn't find out, there's a notion of what's called charata, that he has real, a real regret on his netter. There's ways to deal with this. So the Medrash says something really tragic. The Gemara, it's the Gemara to be found in Tainus, um, Dalai Lama Aleph. The Gemara says the following, that you know what happened is that, um, is that uh, there, was, uh, there was in fact um, a, a great leader at the time and his name was Pinchas. Pinchas was still alive at this time as we're going to see. Pinchas appears at the end of Sefer Shoftim as we'll see, as soon see. Um, and Pinchas is around. So the question the Medrash says, well, why didn't he go to Pinchas or why didn't Pinchas go to him? So the Medrash says something really tragic and that is, that Pinchas said to himself, I should go to him, I'm the prophet. And Yiftach said, I should go to him, I'm the leader. And the Gemara says, between the two of them, that um, between the two of them, the daughter was lost. And the Medrash says, don't think that that, that that was for naught, because Pinchas lost prophecy because of that, because he wasn't willing to go out and act on the leadership he needed to. And Yiftach was, or, or died of a terrible death, he had leprosy, and his, his limbs fell apart, uh, fell apart one after the other, which is why he said he was buried in the hills of Yehuda, meaning to say different parts of him were buried in different places. Why? Because of this tragic inability for leaders to act as leaders. And this is to be found in the expression of the daughter of Yiftach. With this, we're going to conclude, and we'll move on, God willing, next time to the civil war of Yiftach. In the meantime, have a wonderful, meaningful day.